The following episode contains graphic descriptions of torture and a brief description of a sex act. Listener discretion is advised. Mobley Comics Audio presents... 20,000 Leagues into Madness. Created by Brian Del Rio. Based on the works of Jules Verne and H.P. Lovecraft. Chapter 6 The Shadow of Innsmouth. Starring Brian Del Rio and Michelle Del Rio. Rupert slings the elephant gun over his shoulder, hopping down from the train car. The night insects fill the air with their haunting chorus as he looks around, seeming troubled. What was that phrase that French chap used to say? Deja vu. He shakes his head, as if shaking an unpleasant tickle from his mind. Thad disembarks with greater timidity behind him, setting down the oil lamp before climbing down on knees and elbows. He snatches up the lamp, looking back up at me. I can see the glisten of tears in his eyes. He's afraid. You coming, Dakar? I hesitate, thumbing the jewels on the handle of the sword at my side. The jungle, dark as the eyes of a skull, is wreathed in green mist. I am reminded of my dream, of the many-eyed, tentacled thing which called to me. I glance down at the sword, at the image of the multi-trunked elephant that decorates its handle. It is Ervata, the father of all elephants, the fighting elephant of India. His forehead is marked with a naum, the Gurmukhi symbol for the number nine. The elephant and number are my family's coat of arms, the symbols of the house of Singh. To the British, the symbol apparently looked like the letter N, but to my family it was a number representing the nine treasures, tenants which are valued by both Sikh and Hindu alike. I try to draw strength from the image of the multi-trunked elephant, but for the first time notice that the angle of the elephant's head, along with its myriad of trunks and tusks, makes it rather look like an octopus at a glance. I swallow hard, pushing from my mind the memory of the Nautilus being crushed by the octopus's tentacles, and the more recent memory of tentacles dragging me towards a maelstrom of darkness. Dakar? I shake the thoughts from my head, hopping down from the train. Yes, I'm ready. Let's go. You sure you want to come? I nod grimly, shifting the heavy chain on my shoulder. A Sikh must always be ready to come to the aid of the defenseless. It's why we wear a kerb on. A what? A blade. Rupert stops and turns on his heels, nodding at me. The Book of Psalms, chapter 82, verse 3 and 4. I charge you, son of Jesse, defend the fatherless, do justice to the afflicted, deliver the poor and needy, rid them of the hand of the wicked. What does it mean? Rupert gives me a small smile. It means that your people and my people share more values than many realize. Come, lads, we have righteousness on our side this evening. And what is just shall always prevail. Now, let's follow the train up to where Vicar Higginbottom disappeared. We pick a path along the tracks, 
staying near the warm orange light of the train windows, walking from the car where I had retrieved my sword back up to the locomotive. Rupert scans the woods as he marches forward, calling out the vicar's name. Bartholomew Higginbottom! Vicar Higginbottom, can you hear me? Dad! Dad! I glance up and see one of the soldiers leaning against the window, watching us. He shakes his head slowly, his expression telling me he believes us on a fool's errand. Ahead, I can see the flicker of more oil lamps and a single red coat. It is the engineers working to clean the thing we struck from the train tracks, with a company soldier standing guard. The car from which Vicar Higginbottom stepped out for air is near the engine, so we continue closer, scanning the jungle along the way. Thad sweeps the light of the lantern across the trees, which appear as the bones of a ribcage poking up from the swamp. As our trio nears the front of the train, I hear an agitated British voice. As we get closer, I see to whom it belongs. A round man in a black bowler cap, with a cane on the crook of his elbow. He has bushy sideburns, as red as the temper he's exhibiting. He hovers around the workers like a seagull harassing fishermen for scraps. No, no, no. Do you have the slightest idea of the value of the parts you're just casting into the swamp? The engineer rolls his eyes and digs his shovel into the mound of slime, heaving another dollop of sludge over his shoulder. I'm a naturalist, sir. I was sent to this dreadful heathen land to catalogue such finds. A giant slug covered in eyes. Think of the value to science, you gormless git! Are oh, you dead from the neck up? Those ain't eyes. They're just pustules, like the ones on your mother's arse. Now piss off and leave me to me work. The engineer rolls his eyes and digs his shovel into the mound of slime, heaving another dollop of sludge over his shoulder. The spectacles on the man's nose twinkle as his face works in an expression of offense. <laughs> You are hardly the expert here, sir. Hardly. The engineer launches more muck over his shoulder. Then be my guest and jar some of the slug jelly yourself. My only job is to get these tracks and engine clean so we can get out of this damned swamp and make it to Calcutta. Our party stops so Rupert can ask the soldier standing guard about where Vicar Higginbottom was last seen. Thad stands close to Rupert but I find myself lingering in the distance. An eerie wind moans through the trees, like a dead spirit flying through the night sky. A glisten of something near the tracks catches my eye. I slowly crouch, squinting to make out what it is. It is some of the flesh of the slug, covered in glittering gold-green pustules which, indeed, resemble eyes. My heart begins to race as I remember the eyes which surrounded the door. I find myself staring at the mass of slime, unable to look away, my heart pounding until... One of the orbs blinks. I fall back on my bottom, gasping as I notice a small form beside me. It takes me a moment to realize that it's a British girl, presumably one of the train's passengers. She is maybe seven or eight, with hair done in short braids which fall in loops over her ears. Her face is impossible to make out in the gloom, 
nearly as dark as the dress which adorns her small body. She's holding a doll of some kind, but I could not make out its shape. Do you want to play with me? In the dark, I ask, still sitting on the ground. Shouldn't you be on the train with your parents? No. Mother is fine with me playing in the dark. But it probably would be best if you stayed on the train. She turns from me, with an almost dreamlike swish of her small skirts. I finally stand up, sweeping the dirt off my bottom. I stare intently at the girl. What's that supposed to mean? And what kind of mother lets her girl play alone in the dark? The dark is lovely. It hides the things we don't wish to see. And it's better to be alone. Better to be alone than in the company of them. The girl plops down with her back to me, proceeding to play with her doll. I take a step forward, peering over her shoulder. The hairs raise on the back of my neck. That's why you should stay on the train. It's good not to see, because some things cannot be unseen. With growing horror, I realize the doll she's playing with is not a doll at all some kind of hideous tentacle blob, her pale arms covered in red marks from its suction cups. My god, what are you- My head snaps toward Rupert, who's pointing a smoking gun at the trees. You saw that, right? Says Rupert to the company guard, who's now training his pistol on the trees. Sure did, that panther it looked like. Do you have an extra round, son? Uh, not for an elephant gun. Damn. Well, I suppose one round is enough to take out an overgrown cat. He turns to me. Come, Prince Dakar, we have a lead. The company chap was kind enough to point us in the right direction. Still shaken by the gunshot, I take a moment to compose myself. Uh, right. But, but, Rupert, shouldn't you tell this little girl to get back on the tr- I turn back to where the girl was sitting, but find only a plot of grass at the edge of the train tracks. Hmm? What are you going on about? That's father needs our help. Come. I linger a moment as Rupert leads the way into the jungle, looking back at the spot where I am certain I had just had a most unsettling conversation with the most unsettling girl. I turn from the spot, squeezing the sword with a shaking hand. Coming. Hey there, Brian Del Rio here writer, voice actor, and sound editor of Mobley Comics Audio. Check out my Patreon to support me for as little as $1 a month and track the progress of the graphic novel adaptation of 20,000 Leagues into Madness. I already have some pages up. Visit patreon.com slash Comics. That's M-O-B-I-L-I comics. The bulk sucks at our feet, urging us to stop. The clawed branches of the trees tug at our clothes, trying to turn us back. Undeterred, we traipse into the dark swamp, its eerie green mist enveloping us. Kronakapur, Rupert murmurs as he slogs through the muddy shallows. There is a tickle of memory at that word. What? I have been here before. 
many years ago. Suddenly, the trees open up and a small village appears before us, empty and overrun by vines. Naught but shadows and mist inhabit its streets. I was under the command of then Lieutenant Colonel Innsmith. Good God, of all the places for the train to break down. He shakes his head as we pass several stalls which had once belonged to loom workers. The looms appear to have been smashed. Rupert turns from the broken looms, lowering his face in shame. <sighs> Be sure your sins will find you out. The Book of Numbers, chapter 23, verse 32, says that. What was Lachlan Innsmith's business here, I ask, squeezing the handle of my sword as I survey the shadows. The elimination of any exports that could compete with those of the East India Company. As we proceed forward, the moonlight reveals a field to our right, blackened by fire. I linger a moment, staring out at the decades-old destruction. This was a cotton field. At last, I remember. Kamakapur. This was that town. The one that used to export some of the finest rugs and bolts of cloth to all of Europe and Asia, before that Hindu cult took over. What was the name of those two deities they worshipped? We stop as a primitive wood statue appears in the square before us, hideous in its simplicity, painted in what appeared to be blood, now dried and brown, with a pile of what looked to be small animal bones in front of it. Thad slowly approaches the pile with his lantern, dropping into a squat. Inesimoth. Such was his cruelty, and they deified him. Innsmouth. The Hindus here actually worshipped him. I recoil, imagining how such blasphemy would offend my devout mother. Rupert stares at the crude wooden idol. They worshipped him as a kind of devil, yes. He, we, stripped them of all their means of industry, of survival. Robbed the Ganges to feed the Thames. That jumps back from the pile. Christ alive! These are human finger bones! Thumb bones, says Rupert gravely. That was when I noticed the British bayonet sticking up from the dirt beside the bones. We both turn to stare at the old man, who doesn't make eye contact with us. He slowly shakes his head as he stares at the pile with a haunted look. If some version of Innsmith was the one deity... What was the other? I'm not sure what the other was. I only heard rumors about it years after. It was something old. Older than Hinduism. Older than the Indus Valley civilization itself. Some kind of statue or idol they found out in the swamp when their desperation drove them to scour it in search of food. Rumors from the locals said the Kanakapuri engaged in dark rituals to worship the idol. Human sacrifice, bestiality. Whatever they did, it, it, it changed the Kanakapuri. Somehow. I raise a skeptical eyebrow. Come now, Rupert. You can't seriously believe in the fish people of Miristika's swamp. Rupert shrugs. Legends are often embellished truths. Whatever the change was, something about the Karnakapuri scared the surrounding villages. 
People don't need scales or claws to become monstrous. Just a uniform, or a high enough dose of desperation. Dad! Thad, wait! Thad tears down an alleyway and back out into the swamp. Rupert and I hustle after him. Damn the lad! I only have one shot! This gun is good for taking out a single animal, not a group of angry natives! I draw my sword, arm shaking from the weight of the blade. Then make that shot count, Mr. Demney. I'll handle the rest, I declare, sounding far more confident than I actually felt. Who was I fooling? I could barely lift the thing, much less fight multiple assailants with it. We splash into the bog after that, pushing past dangling moss and vines, ignoring the vile things which slither past our submerged ankles and skitter up our weft legs as we wade through the water. Rupert calls out in a hoarse whisper as we see red light begin to poke through the trees ahead and hear the ominous beat of drums. Shadows move back and forth amid the hellish glow, writhing, thrashing, and jumping as they move from right to left, from left to right. My blood runs cold as I hear their voices, braying and bellowing like beasts, as between frantic cries of pain and ecstasy they chant it. Ahead of us, I can see that Thad has fallen to his stomach and is crawling on his elbows toward the light. Thad! Rupert signals and we both follow suit. The mud swallows my forearms as I slosh forward on my belly like a snake. As we draw nearer, I can see that the bodies dancing in fevered circles around the bonfire are void of clothing. Darkness mercifully conceals the full extent of their actions. From the whip of reeds and the thrust of bent arms, I could tell many of the celebrants were simultaneously committing acts of self-torture and self-pleasure. There is precious little light to make out their faces, but from the strange shape of their heads, I could tell they were all wearing masks of some sort. At last, Rupert and I are on either side of Thad, who has stopped at the edge of the firelight. Our gaze rises to the statue on the other side of the flames, which was so roughly hewn and weathered that its form was difficult to comprehend in the darkness, though I vaguely discern the shape of a crouching animal or man. On the side of the bonfire nearest to us is some sort of latticework of ropes and bags dangling from pegs mere inches above the ground. That! Do you see him? Where is your... That's when we saw it. The thing spread across the ground wasn't ropes and bags. It was Thad's father. He lay, spread eagle before the flames on his stomach, bound by his wrists and ankles. His back and ribs opened like a book. They had removed his lungs and hung them from pegs so that they were spread like wings from his mutilated back. So too had his intestines been sickeningly unspooled, hung like garlands from poles near the fire. As my heart pounds and my blood turns to ice, thinking of how horrific a way to die that must have been, I notice the lungs are inflating and deflating. Oh my god, he's still alive! Thad claps a hand over his mouth. Oh my god! 
Bartholomew twitches and gurgles as a priest of some kind approaches, dropping into a squat in front of him. He points at an open Bible, set on a primitive stand before the vicar's face. The time has come. The sure sacrificed itself to stop your train, to deliver you and the book to us. I feel a chill run up my spine at the swamp priest's words. I knew which book he was talking about, and it wasn't the Christian Bible Bartholomew Higginbottom had taken with him as he had stepped out of the train earlier that evening. Inasimov showed us the beauty of cruelty and taught us the ecstasy of agony. Now, cast the spell, cleric of the false god. Speak the invocation of Yog sothoth He that lurks at the threshold, the outer god, born of the nameless mist. Open the gates that great Cthulhu may at last claim what is his. By right and by lust, the incense which rises from the suffering of our pathetic race. Bartholomew takes a ragged, painful inhale, the lungs floating to either side of him, trembling in his breath. <laughs> sets a hand on Thad's shoulder. He looks him in the eye. Farewell, Thaddeus. But you and Dakar have done all you can do. Run. Back to the train. And don't look back. What are you talking about, Rupert? You said you would help. You said what is just will always prevail. Rupert gives the weeping boy a pained smile and I can see the tears glistening in his eyes. <laughs> I don't know if that's true anymore, but tonight at least I can do my part to make it true. That's why you two are leaving, and I'm staying. Go. Be good, lads. Be good, lads. Cheerio. With that, the old conductor rises and makes his way through the trees, stepping into the firelight. The worshippers jump back as he emerges from the shadows, giving him just enough time to put the elephant gun to Bartholomew's head and pull the trigger. Rupert Debney, veteran of Her Majesty's Royal Marines, had made his one shot count. The blast of the elephant gun muffles Thad's cry of pain, and I clap my hand over his mouth, watching through eyes blurred with tears as the mob of worshippers pile onto Rupert. The old man drops his gun in acceptance of his fate, spreading out his arms as he shouts, For Queen and Country! As the furious mob begins pulling him in every direction, I am able to maintain my silence until I hear the pop of disconnecting bones. <laughs> One of the worshippers' faces snaps to where Thad and I are laying in the dark. And that's when I see what I thought was a mask, was his actual head. Edged in firelight, I can just make out the worshippers' bulging, unblinking eyes. His flat nose, his shrunken ears, and the frilled slits on either side of his jawline, which 
glisten and pucker like nostrils. I stared at the creature before me, unable to come to grips with what I'm seeing. Surely it was a trick of the light. Surely I was overcome by fear, grief, and exhaustion. As it takes a tentative step toward us, I decide at last that we've lingered too long. I seize a fistful of that shirt, launching him into motion with me. Run, that! Run! Mobley Comics Audio.